saw movement from two people. That's all we need, two, two or three. You want to open your Bible to John chapter 1, and what else did I pull up? Romans 6. So John chapter 1 and Romans 6. Amen. Are you all ready? John 1 and Romans 6. We're going to start in John chapter 1, but I'm going to pray first. So, Father, we ask that there will be a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know you better. I pray that the word would come alive inside of us today. I pray that you would activate us. I pray for the Bridge Church right now, God. I, I lift the Bridge Church up to you. You know why we're here. You know the vision you've given us. And I put the bridge in your hands, God. I pray for those listening through the podcast, those that are homesick, those that are out on vacation, those that listen every week. God, I ask that you bless them. I ask that you do something special for them, God. I ask that you would encourage their hearts. I ask that you would help them to find deep community and fulfillment in their life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in John chapter 1. That's where we're going to read first. John chapter 1, starting with verse 14, all right? John 1, verse 14. And it says, And the Word, why don't you you read it along with me? And the Word became flesh. Say that again. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of Grace and truth. How awesome is that? In all of Jesus' power and authority, he's full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out saying, This was he who, I said, was coming after me as a higher rank than I do. For he existed before me. So people were running around John and Hanging out with John, and he's like, wait a second, there's someone out coming after me. I'm just going, I'm the, the, the head of the spear. I'm just going ahead and breaking up the ground and shaking everybody up because it's been 400 years since anyone's heard from this guy up, upstairs. It's been 400 years since people heard the voice of the Lord. Think about that for a minute. This is the atmosphere that the word became flesh. From the driest season ever, 400 years of silence from God, This prophet named John the Baptist comes out and starts preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he says, make straight a path for the Lord, make straight paths for him. He's on his way. And he says, this is what I'm talking about. The word becoming flesh. Can you imagine 400 years of not hearing from God at all? Longer than our country has been a country. They did not hear the voice of the Lord. They did not hear the prophet speak from for the Lord. For 400 years, and then this is the new announcement. Hello, everyone. We need to interrupt this regularly scheduled program to tell you that the 400 years of silence is over. And he's not only breaking silence with my voice, he's going to appear before you in flesh form. 
(laughs) You're not only going to hear about the stories and the word of the Lord. You're actually going to, with your eyes, see the glory of the Father in the Son. (laughs) His rank is higher than mine, is what he tells them. It says, because he existed before me. He's the eternal one. For of his fullness we have all received. (laughs) And I love this line. And grace upon grace. Everyone say grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth was realized through Jesus Christ. Oh, man. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who was in the in the bosom of the father. And he explained and I'm going to stop reading that for there. No one has seen God. It's been silent for 400 years, but I'm here to announce to you that the person coming after me, this Jesus, this Messiah is going to come in in flesh form and he's going to be the word of God in flesh form. And you're going to see him with your eyes and you're going to taste of his grace and of his truth. You're going to taste the fullness of the father through the son. Amen. Now let's move forward to Romans chapter six, and I'm going to read the whole chapter because I don't want to miss any of this. Romans chapter 6. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Um, that's my, my, uh, my preference. I prefer it. Romans 6 verse 1. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Here's what he's really saying. Like grace is so awesome. Like where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So if you're thinking logically and you're really processing this like it's a math problem. And the teacher comes in and says, hey, when there's sin, grace is greater than the sin. So if you're thinking that, what's the only logical conclusion? We should sin. (laughs) We should have some sin up in here because if there's sin, grace is greater than the sin. And he's like, whoa, whoa, I like that you're thinking with me here. And that is the logical conclusion if you're thinking from an earthly mind. But that's not how Christ thinks. That's not the mind of Christ. We should not continue in sin just so that grace should increase. We should not mess up just to display how graceful God is. Grace is greater than just mercy. Grace is greater than just covering up sin. Hello? He says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still sin? Basically, he's saying, you don't understand grace. Because if you think grace gives us license to sin, you don't understand it. Because grace turned you into a completely different person. You are no longer a sin creature. You have a new nature. Right? You still tracking with me here? Or do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? So when Christ died, we died. And we'll say, if Christ died, I died. Verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus died 
we were crucified with him. We were dead to sin. And because he rose from the dead, we rose from the dead in him. If we're baptized into his life. Amen. For, we, for if we have become unified or united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So if we looked like him when we died, then we will look like him because he raised. So this concept of let's sin, let's do what we want to so that grace. No, because if we're like him, we will do what he does. Flesh begets flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Amen. Verse six, knowing this, this is one of my favorite parts of the whole Bible. This gave me such freedom when a few years ago, the Lord told me that I have permission to stop answering for old Jared. I carried around shame for a long time of things that old Jared did. And the Lord, through this scripture, said, I give you permission to quit giving uh, answers for old Jared. Quit coming up with alibis for him. Stop defending him. He's dead. You don't even know him anymore. Now, the key to that was me to, for me to stop acting like old Jared. So when I cut ties with old Jared and I stopped acting like old Jared, I don't have to answer for him anymore because I'm not him. I love it when people say, don't ever talk with the enemy about your old nature. Don't, don't do that. Don't bring up that. Don't let the enemy bring up your old nature in discussion with him. Always have your attorney present. The advocate, Jesus, the tough, smart lawyer, right? <laughs> the hammer. Uh, this is just good. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Amen to that. Verse 7, for he who has died is free from sin. So how do we get free from sin? We die. And if the process of death starts, then there's always a resurrection in in Jesus, in Christ, in the way God operates. There's always life after death. How many believe that? He even talks about it when he's speaking of farming terms and, and the seed. He says a seed falls to the ground and it dies. But what comes from the death of the seed? Whatever plant, new life. If it was a if it was a an oak tree, the acorn dies and gives birth to this massive oak tree. Death always gives birth to life, always to resurrection. So if we die to sin, if we're dead, then we will be resurrected into a new life. And whatever seed was planted is what we will spring up as in our new life. Christ is the seed from the father. How many believe that? How many know that's true? So his seed was planted inside of us so that as we die, his expression of life lives through our life. Now, verse eight. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer is master over him. Verse 11, verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. He died one time for all mankind's sin. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves 
Say it. Dead to sin. But what? Alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is what grace is. Grace is a death to the old and a resurrection to the new. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and desires. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. See, I'm a new creation, so I do new things. We're new creations, so we do new things. Amen? But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And present your members of your body as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. Amen to that? For you are not under law. You are under grace. Thank God to that. See, I want to talk about grace culture today. And I just want to interject this before I finish reading. A law culture highlights what's wrong. A grace culture highlights the standard of Jesus. The law was put in place, the Bible teaches us this, through the the theology that's taught all through Romans and in Paul's writings, that the law was put into place so that sin would increase. What, What does that even mean? The law was written down so that mankind could adequately assess why there's so much pain and sickness and suffering i want to take it to this to this place god through the holy spirit came upon men and moses to write down these laws of god the ways of god so that people could begin to understand why people weren't living as long as they used to think back in genesis when people lived 960 plus years Think of Methuselah, 969 years. Jared, 962 years. That's right. That's where I got my name. I want to live long. Jared was the father of Enoch, and he lived 962 years. And and Enoch walked with God for 300 years. I mean, good. These people lived so long, right? And now, all of a sudden, they're not living as long as they were. There's pain. There's diseases. There's suffering. And no one understands why. So God writes down a law. He writes down his ways. And when you think of God's laws, don't think of it uh, as I want to punish you for not doing these things. It's God saying, when you live this way, you have life. When you don't live this way, the the repercussions are the pain, the suffering, the death. So God gave us the law out of his mercy so that we could understand why things were wrong. Instead of saying, it's your fault, God. The law was not put in place so that we could blame God. It was put in place for us to understand that God didn't do this to us. Our decisions put us on a path that led to destruction. So the law was put in place so that, so that the, the offenses and the sin would become realized. Then we could say, oh, I dishonored my mother and my father. That's why I, I'm not living as long. That's the, that's a command with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, then you will have a long life. That's that's the first commandment with a promise attached to it. Oh, we're not supposed to steal our neighbor's spouse. Okay, I understand why there's such destruction and there's rebellion inside families and fighting over stuff because we're breaking the laws of God. 
So the law was put in place for us to say, hey, we can't do this on our own. We need help, God. We need help, God. We're falling apart. And the law was put there so that we would need God. We would cry out for mercy. And so because of that cry from the heart of mankind, God sent his son Jesus in flesh form to be the fulfillment of the law, to be the fulfillment of all those commands that we couldn't seem to live up to. Jesus did it for us so that by simply dying and saying yes to him and being raised in him, now we can live in the fullness and the abundant life that that God wanted for us all along. Verse 15, we're not under the law. Verse 14 ends, we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. The law in modern times now, we're not under a law culture that just is trying to pick and pick and find out what's wrong with us or with other people. We're under a grace culture that holds up the standard of who Jesus is and says we're supposed to look like that. If we don't look like that, what do we need to do in our relationship with him to position ourselves to get to that point? What, what area of surrender, what area of obedience do I need to, to access and activate in my life so that I can look like Christ? That's a grace culture. It doesn't punish people for failing to hit the standard. It reminds them of the standard and gives them the choice to position themselves toward the standard. A law culture punishes people when they fall short. A law culture punishes other people who don't live the way we do. But a grace culture says we're not all exactly in the same place. But we have the same God. So because we have the same father, I'm going to honor you regardless of your behavior. Now, if your behavior is like the old Jared or like the old person that you were, I'm going to call you out on it because grace is here to uh, empower you to do what you couldn't do before. Law locks you into that old nature and punishes you. See, when I serve punishment for my old nature, I'm locked in a prison and I have no opportunity to become new. But when I'm set free from that and I'm, and I'm, I'm given the opportunity to choose to reposition my life, I'm, I'm given the opportunity to, to make adjustments and changes then I get rewarded for those changes as a new creation. And I don't get locked in a cell of, with my old nature. Is everyone still with me? We'll get more into that in a minute. So verse 15. So what then? <laughs> what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And he's like, hello, have you been listening to me? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience... You are now slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. In other words, the way you choose to live your life proves who your master is. Is Christ your master or is yourself your master? If we live according to the flesh, we will reap from the flesh. But if we live according to the spirit, we will reap from the spirit. Amen. And then verse 17, here's the hope in that. But thanks to God that through that though we were slaves to sin, you have become obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, you heard the word and you repositioned your heart towards that. You were formed into a new creation by hearing the word of God and saying yes to it. And having been freed from sin, 
you have now become slaves to righteousness. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, now present yourselves as slaves to righteousness, and the result is sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free from righteousness. In other words, when you were living according to the old nature and you were having sin and you, you lived a life of sin, you were divorced from the benefits of righteousness. And he says, verse 21, what benefit were you deriving from the things which now you're ashamed of? He's asking, what inheritance did you get from living according to the flesh? What benefit did you get by doing whatever you wanted to do? And he's basically saying nothing. We didn't get anything from it but pain and suffering, right? But now that we've been freed from sin and become slaves to God, we derive our, his, our, uh, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace culture, a grace culture, not in a law culture. <clears throat> we used to define grace, and you've probably heard it this way, and it's not wrong. It's just inc- it's incomplete. That, that grace is undeserved favor, unmerited favor. And that's, to me, that's the doorway into grace. It's the undeserved, unmerited favor. It's the doorway. But grace is more than that because it's the, it's the empowering presence of God. I don't deserve this, but he, he gave it to me because he said I deserve it. So it's not based on whether I feel I deserve it or not. It's based on his measurements. And he said I deserved it. He said you deserve it. So we stepped in by grace into this. But that would have been incomplete if, if grace wasn't the empowering presence of God that now lifts us up from what we were capable of doing in ourselves, he's now given us superpower, super authority. Everyone still with me? Grace causes things to grow. Would you say that with me? Grace causes things to grow, good or bad. Good or bad. And, that, and to me, we had this discussion in discipleship um, last week. I asked that question. How do you feel when you hear that? That grace allows even bad things to grow. How does that, just think about it just for a second. How does that make you feel when you think about God and you think about the blood of Jesus and you think about grace and you realize that it lets things grow whether they're good or bad? How, how does that make you feel? How do you reconcile that in your mind? See, when I first heard that, when I first began to, to, to dive into that truth, it offended me. Because I was like, why, why would God let the, the things that are in my heart to grow, whether they're good or bad? Why would he do that? And I was taken back to the Garden of Eden. Why would he put a tree in the garden that he didn't want them to eat from? And why would he even bring their attention to it and then say, don't eat of it? Because God, 
announces his presence with liberty. Freedom. You have the ability to choose. Real liberty and real grace in a grace culture. Liberty is I have the ability to choose to add to or take away things from my life. Every one of you are powerful. We're all powerful. We've all been given that power. I am a chooser. We were all born choosers. Even our littlest children can decide to throw a tantrum or not throw a tantrum. And we can try all we want to to stop them. And if they want to throw one, they will throw one, correct? Now, they, they will manage themselves towards how we discipline them. And if we say, if you throw that tantrum, there will be consequences. But they still choose whether to throw the tantrum or not. When a child decides not to throw a tantrum, is it a sign of how wonderful a parent we are or how obedient the child is? See, in a law culture, when people position themselves to the standard, it just proves how great of leaders we are and how great we are at controlling the culture and how great teachers we are and what great parents we are. But in a grace culture, when people position themselves toward the standard, it proves what obedient children they are. And they get the reward. Come on. When that child decides not to throw the tantrum. It's <laughs> I I've not parented greatly in this in my past, I must admit. That child should be. Lift it up and and uh, we should pat them on the back. Hey, good choice. You're a good decider. You're a good chooser. You made a really good choice there so that they learn from little that they're choosers and that when they choose the right thing, there's a reward attached to it. See, the Bible says in Hebrews that that those that come to Christ, that come to God, must first believe that he is. Like that he exists, he's real, and that he is the rewarder. God is the rewarder. He is not the punisher. So whenever God lifts up that standard of Christ and says, now I'm, I'm lifting the standard, here's the standard now. The normal Christian life should look like Jesus' life. And that sounds like, wow, that's impossible. How could we live like Christ? Because grace came and grace not only gave me access into this and said, you don't deserve this, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Then his presence comes over us and literally empowers us so that we can do it. And whenever we're given the opportunity to decide when we're given these pivot points in our life where what we really believe is raised up. And we have a choice to make. This way is life, this way is death. Or maybe it's not so clearly obvious, but this way doesn't seem right, but this way just seems right. I don't know how I know this, but I do. Whenever we make that right choice, we're rewarded as choosers. We're rewarded for doing the right thing. And I, I want to build a grace culture. I want to, to continually drive this point home in our culture that we're a grace culture and people uh, uh, what a grace culture does is it is it is confrontational we would like to think that oh i'm just giving someone a pass as grace that's not grace 
the worst thing we can do to a child, I'm just go back to that one, that continues to throw tantrums and just say, I'm just going to let them grow out of it. No, they won't grow out of it. They'll just learn better ways of throwing tantrums. They may not always kick and scream on the floor, but as they become an adult, they may dig their heels in in other ways. And we never gave them an opportunity to choose to stop the behavior that, that undermines people's respect for them. Like what would it look like if what does it look like if a boss throws a temper tantrum at work? What does that do for morale? First of all, like we don't want to work for this lady. What is her problem? We don't want to work for this guy. What's wrong with them? Then it erodes our respect for that person. And it's all because somewhere along the line they weren't given the stand. Look, that's not okay. This is the standard. Bridge Church. The standard that we've accepted in the past is it's done. We're done with that. There's, there's a standard of Christ, period. If we're not measuring up to that standard, this grace culture is about to be confrontational when it comes to that. We can't have grace without confrontation. We are so afraid of confrontation. And I, we, we hit on this a little bit this morning, but I want to say it again quickly. We're afraid of confrontation because number one, we don't like to be confronted. We're, it's, it's a scary thing for us. We take it as if you don't love me. You don't, we take it as a personal attack. Let me say this. In a grace culture, confrontation is never, never a personal attack. Never. So don't be afraid for confrontation to happen in a grace culture. The second reason we're afraid of confrontation is because we're afraid of confronting somebody. We're afraid they're going to blow up or not like us or cut us out of their life. Because we've known a lot of mafia people in our life. And they cut us out. They take us out of the family. We're all good at that. So we've got both fears. I'm afraid for you to confront me because I feel like you don't accept me and you don't love me. And I'm afraid to confront you because I'm afraid you'll cut me out of my life because you don't love me. But in a grace culture, love comes into the equation. And love, love always points to the standard and says, this is the standard. Here's your choice. So great for us to take the next step in this cultural awareness as the bridge church. We have to have more confrontation. Confrontation in a grace culture is not law. The law points at what you, brought, what you did wrong and what's wrong with you. That's law. This is what's wrong with you. Con when we confront someone in a grace culture, it is never, you know what's wrong with you? You know what's wrong with you? Confrontation in a grace culture is, this is the standard of a believer. You said yes to this. So I'm not bringing something to you you didn't say yes to. The worst thing to do is to try to hold someone accountable to something they never agreed to. But if you said yes to being a believer, you better believe that confrontation is needed. And, and you said yes. I said yes. Amen? So we said yes to this. We said yes to the kingdom. Then whenever we have a display, an attitude that doesn't line up with the kingdom, it could be a doubtful comment. 
Someone could say, man, I, I pray that your business does well. And your, your response is, well, I, you know, I hope we just make it. In, no, stop that. Confrontation needed right now. Your business is to prosper. The Lord is a good provider. Don't let those thoughts come out of your mouth. That's confrontational, but that's grace. Because grace says, here's the standard. And there is a reward when we position ourselves toward the standard. So let's just use that example. Let's say I've been having negative comments come out of my, my, out of my, my mouth. And my wife comes to me and says, Jared, stop it. Jared, stop it. When I stop it, she should say, good job. Not tomorrow. Hey, remember when you were saying all that negative crap? <laughs> good job. You made an adjustment. We've been literally practicing practicing this in our home if if any of us get out of alignment and we okay here's this this is not okay this is how we act in this family that's not how we act whenever either one of us is adults our kids can confront us too in our home we allow that there's a respectful way for kids to confront adults there just is and it's it's good for kids to learn that because they will always think that the oldest person in the room always has the power So we teach them. So in our home, if, if, if we do something, we say something that's out of the standard, outside of the standard, then we get to say something about it. Hey, that's not okay. This is what you agreed to. This is how we live. Now, you get a chance to choose now how you move towards that. You move towards it, you get, you get encouraged. Good job. Good job. You don't move towards it, we continue to hold the standard up until you position yourself we don't move the standard never moves christ has never he hasn't been moved off of his cornerstone foundation he's still there the 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 responsibility on the early church wasn't more than on the latter-day church hello the responsibility that the apostles carried around was no greater than the responsibility we carry around right now the standard is the same. Jesus Christ is perfect theology, I've heard it said. You see it in Jesus, then that's who God is. That's how we're to measure ourselves. And again, in a grace culture, the measurement isn't, oh, I'm not good enough. The measurement is, man, Jesus is good enough. And as I look at him, we become like him. That's what worship is. That's why we do this silly thing every week when we come together. It seems silly. We sing songs together in a room, and we're not all singers, but we sing together, and we dance, and we laugh, and we cry, because we're worshiping something that's bigger than we are, and by worshiping Him, we become like Him. When we worship things in our life, we become like Him. I remember my favorite baseball player growing up was King Griffey Jr. I wanted to be King Griffey Jr., I wore his shoes. I wore my hat backwards in batting practice like he did. I tried to do everything like he did. I loved the guy because I worshipped him. So I became like him. I tried to. We become what we worship. <clears throat> the standard, Jesus Christ, we lift him up. 
We exalt him. When we, when we do this thing of worship and prayer and the disciplines of Christianity, what we're doing is we're raising up Christ as the standard. We're putting him on his throne higher than everything else in our life. And we're lifting him up saying, you're the standard. And we're trying to be like you. We're, we're pushing towards you right now. We want you to know we see you. And that moment of seeing him lifted up, nothing else compares to him. He's exalted above everything. And, and when I have a decision to make, well, this is good and this, this is like him or this is bad and it's not like, there's no competition. Look how awesome he is. If we're having a hard time making good decisions, then it's because our worship is lacking. Because when Christ, the standard is lifted up, there's no competition and decisions are easy to make. Because there he is so high. And so pure and so holy and so good. And this is terrible compared to that. Why would I choose this? It's not even a a test. He's the standard. And now we begin to position ourselves and it's a grace culture. And the grace culture only works when Christ is lifted up. When the law, when the standards of the Bible are lifted up without the person, the law made flesh, without the word made flesh, it becomes a legalistic place. And we begin to express ourselves through legalistic terms instead of, no, I just, all I know is I've been praising and lifting him up and I see him and I have to be like him. And it allows us to weigh things in our life. The liberty that comes from that. Oh, it's easy to choose. It's easy to decide. And then here's what, it doesn't matter how easy the choice is. I get rewarded no matter what. We get the reward. Everyone's still good? close with this a grace culture cannot be stirred up in isolation i believe this is my belief i don't believe that we can have the fullness of grace by ourselves i don't believe that i can just close myself off in a closet in my house and not have fellowship with the body of christ real fellowship real fellowship not surface phony fellowship real fellowship i don't believe that i can taste the fullness of grace without other people see i only see god the way i see him like my experiences my revelations are they're mine but man when we come together some of the best times we ever have in any church fellowship gathering is when everyone starts talking about their relationship with the lord it's like whoa we begin to honor their relationship with God. Like, I didn't even know that about you. I didn't know you loved that part of God so much. And what that does is it raises the standard a little higher. It raises the standard higher. And it, when we rub shoulders together and we, we look at the standard together and say, hey, are you pressing towards that? And I, I answer, yes, I am. Are you pressing towards it? Yeah. Then let's go for this together. We can't have that in isolation. <laughs> This, this year, like this is such a critical year for this church. I, I don't know how else to say it. That's as blunt as I'll be. This is a critical year for this church. We're in our eighth year of being here. And it's time for some changes. Let's just be completely gut level honest. And there's the two places I think we need to change the most is our passionate pursuit of Christ and our community with one another. And that's the, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength or your might. 
and love your neighbor as yourself. Like there's this thing that we have to get back to. The, the greatest commandments, love God, love others. We have to do this. I would say that we do the first one pretty well. We can always do better in our pursuit of God. Like there's just always more to him we can find. But that second part of community, of, of real fellowship, we're not good at that at all. A few, a few people do it really well. I mean, eating in each, other, each other's homes, hanging out together, shooting guns together. That's, I love that. I was like, man, I'm never messing with Stephen. He'll hit me like right here. There's no, he's not going to miss. Right in the, he'll hit the button on my shirt. I mean, real like fellowship. And you know what? If he'll send me a scripture text, like, hey, just thinking of this, just these things. We need to do more of that. We had someone at our house the other night, and um, when their kids came in, their first their first question was, "Why are we here?" I'm like, well, we're just coming over to eat dinner. That's that's what we told the kids. Or do we have a meeting tonight? Do we have church? And I said, you know what? There is a sign that we don't have community. Because if our kids say, we're going to eat with them, do we have church? Do we have a meeting? No. We just do life together. It's community. We hang out together. That's what we do. When we do that, you will see the grace and the growth and the transformation personally in your family and in the church, it will go off the charts. I I only know one time in my life where I saw this like really personal, hands on, with our youth ministry. We were good at pursuing God, man. We really loved the Lord. We made a lot of mistakes here and there, but we really all loved God and we were pursuing Him. But there was no community in our youth ministry, and then all of a sudden it shifted overnight. And we, we started this thing where we created, we called them tribes. And we did competitions, and there were small groups where youth leaders took over each group. And we had six and eight tribes and 20 to 30 kids in these different tribes. But it didn't start out there. It got to the 20 or 30 in each tribe as we developed community inside those things. And I saw it. We are going after God in our worship service. We had fun youth services but it was the tribes, it was the community that caused, we called it duo, our youth ministry. It caused it to, to be fun. And even to this day, people from that ministry say it was the best time of our life. Why? Because we had community. We had connection. So, Father, right now, I ask that you would do it again. I ask God that you would do it again in this house. I just raised up a testimony. And I ask that you would do it again, God. That you would raise up tribe leaders in the bridge where we'll take people and we'll do life with them. Where wine can be found in the cluster where we're not individual grapes all on our own. I pray for unity to come to this body, God. I pray for a hunger for connection, a hunger for true friendship, a hunger for community to spring up in the bridge, church. I pray you make us brave, brave to do relationship, brave to confront and be confronted, Hmm. brave to share life together without fear of judgment, without fear of punishment. 
I ask that you do it again here, God. This year, right now, God, start it. The Bible says that God puts the lonely into what? Families. Would you say that with me? God puts the lonely into families. Can we become a family instead of just a church? Where the lonely, the people we pass each day, the people we work with that are all alone would say, I want to be in your family. I need to be in your family. Not, I want to join your church. I want to be in your family. Your family. Hmm. Would you stand? And we're going to pray into that. That's going to be our altar time right now. <clears throat> I would like for you to pray that God would do that, that he would stir up that desire for the family of God, for community, for grace culture. Would you pray out loud? It, you don't have to scream unless you want to. It's fine with me. Uh, but please pray out loud with your, your words. I'll pray quietly in the mic, but I would like for all of us to just pray and ask God for that. Uh, God, you established a family. You're the one. You're the father. <laughs> you chose the family, and you chose for the body of Christ to be called a body, fitly joined together. And I pray right now, God, that you would fitly join this body together, that we would see breakthrough and understanding of community and family. Father, I ask that you would anoint us right now to do community well, to do life together well. I know that in my own life, it's been a 40-year journey to get me to understand this. And now I get it, God. I need people. We need each other, God. We need one another. Everyone around me has gold, and I need the gold they have. And they need what I have. And it took 40 years to learn this, but God, I understand now. And I want it. I crave it, God. I crave relationship. I crave intimate friendships. I crave brothers and sisters to fight with. I crave it. I want to laugh. I want to have fun together. <laughs> I just ask God that you would make the bridge of family. And we say yes to this. How many here will say yes to that? And, and when you say, well, let me, when you say yes to this, that's the standard that we're going to hold us all accountable to. Will you say yes to community? You say yes to being in a family. Would you raise your hand if you say yes to that? Yeah. And it, it, if you go to another church, it's all the family of God. We're, we say yes to being in a family, community. The, the, the goal is to connect somewhere and get connected and connect, connect, connect. Don't break connection. Whew. Amen. It is a good word. We're all a family. We choose to connect here, but we're all family, right? We have communion set out. We, we, I, I forgot to do it last week, and so we, it's, it's fresh. It's not old juice from last week, just so you know. <laughs> Although I did test it, and it was okay. But it was a little fermented. I was a little ha- No, I'm just playing. No, it's good. It's ready to go. So we want to take communion to close service out. Um, and we, you can come up and serve yourselves in just a moment. I'm, I'm going to pray real quick over the bread and over the, over the juice. Um, and just, it's a, it's a, it's, 
it's a unifying thing. It's kind of good we're doing it today because it, it, he says, as often as you do this, remember me. And, and that's kind of what we're doing. We're being remembered, remembered, re-put back together. So, Father, I thank you for sending Jesus, <laughs> the word in flesh form. We, we got to see the glory of the Father in the life of the Son. And we love, we love you, Jesus. I really love you. You've always been so close and so good. I love the sacrifice you made. I love that you were a spotless, perfect sacrifice. You consistently chose the better thing so that your sacrifice had the greatest influence. So thank you for that. Not just for dying, but for choosing every day to make your death count. Thank you. Now, thank you for giving your body, knowing ahead of time what you were going to have to do. You could have done something else, but you said yes. (laughs) and your reward was you were given a name above every name and you were given the keys to death and hell and the grave so your choice was rewarded so today we come into covenant with that choice we come into covenant with your body and with your blood and we say yes to you we choose you jesus to bring us together to make us one we choose to partake of your death and of your resurrection today. We honor you with humility and with fear, God. I honor you and I honor you, Jesus, for what you did. Thank you for your body that makes me whole. Thank you for your blood that cleanses me white as snow, God. In Jesus' name, amen. You can come up.